So you'll know that over the past few months we've been walking our way through Paul's letter to the Philippians and now we turn the clock back some two and a half thousand uh, or more years from today and some five to seven hundred years before even Paul to words written uh, in a very different place at a very different time and yet words that echo today with a sense of uh, truthfulness and of hope. Uh, for today. They're words, as I say, that in their different ways, all four of the gospel writers pick up and apply to Jesus in one way or another. Say, you hear these words? These words were pointing ahead to the one who would come, uh, the one who would uh, speak for God. And we're going to spend this Sunday and the next four looking at five songs from the book of Isaiah, all of which um, uh, over the years Christians have seen to be pointing ahead to the person of Jesus, God's servant, the one come to serve us, the one come serve uh, his heavenly father, the one come to bring rescue and hope. We have to take a few steps back, though, uh, because it seems to me that if we're going to read the words of a prophet some two and a half thousand or more years ago, we have to understand something of what prophecy really is. It seems to me that if we're to read words written in such a different time and such a different place to such a different people at such a different time, we have to have some sense of, well, how might it connect with us today? Why is it worth giving 20 minutes of our time, um, even just 20 minutes of our time, to hearing these words? Uh, And it seems to me that what it all boils down to is three words that sum up three questions that I think every human being on this planet who's ever lived and whoever will live has to answer. They are to do with the nature of reality, the question of judgment, and the possibility of hope. The nature of reality, uh, the nature of judgment, and the possibility of hope. By which I mean, every human being has to ask the question, what is really true about the world in which I live today? What is really true? What is really happening? Of course, nothing could be more in the news today than the nature of truth and reality. What is true about our community? What is true about our world? What is the reality of the world in which we live? There's almost nothing that gets thought about more on the pages of our newspapers, on our, in our internet, uh, on our TV screens, or our radio. Every human being has to decide what is the nature of this real world in which we live. And then actually every human being has to make a judgment about it. So, two people might look at the same situation and say, yes, I live in a world in which there is huge inequality. But then the question of judgment is, what causes that? Uh, What's right? What's wrong? What's behind it? So you can have two people looking at exactly the same scene, agreeing on the reality of this inequality or this injustice, uh, but disagreeing passionately over their judgment of what caused it, what's behind it. So, to take what I've already started with, if you look at the, uh, the sort of financial uh, and the material inequalities in a particular country or in the world, you can agree that somebody has a lot less money than somebody else, a lot fewer opportunities than somebody else, uh, a lot less access to healthcare than somebody else. But then you have to take a judgment as to what's behind that, what's right and what's wrong about it. Every human being is making those judgments all the time. And then perhaps the hardest question of all that every human being has to answer, and that is the question of hope. The question of hope. 
Nobody in their right mind imagines this world is perfect. All of us long that our own lives, the life of our family, the life of our community and nation and world would be different than it is today. The question is, could it be? And how could it be? And and when might it be better or different? Every human being has to answer these, these, these three questions. And I say all that because actually those three issues, the question of reality, of judgment, and of hope, are exactly the calling of biblical prophets. If you want the definition of what a prophet does in the Bible, it's not actually most of all about trying to guess or foretell the future. That's sort of soothsaying. That's reading tea leaves or looking in a crystal ball. It's smoke and mirrors and generally uh, pretty unhealthy stuff. Actually, when you come to the prophets, especially in the Old Testament, what you find is that God has given them acute and unusual perception and clarity about reality, about judgment, and about hope. That's what the prophets do. So when you read the prophet Isaiah, and I'm, just for those of you who, who know a little bit about the Bible, you'll, you might know that there is a, quite a sort of fight that's gone on over hundreds and hundreds of years, but particularly the last 200 years, about whether the book of Isaiah is one person writing as a prophet, uh, looking ahead at points maybe 150 years from where they lived, or whether it's a collection of writings that together have become known as the book of Isaiah. I don't think we need to concern ourselves with it because actually this is the book we've got. And it sits together beautifully as a whole. So just for those of you who are interested in such things, I'm going to talk about the prophet Isaiah as my shorthand for saying this book, the words that are here. But this prophet and these prophecies, they speak with clarity given by God about the nature of reality, what's really happening to God's Old Testament people, ancient Israel. They speak with words of judgment, what's right, what's wrong. And they speak about hope. Where does hope come from? How does hope arrive? When will hope be seen and real? This is vital stuff. Because you and I can't pretend that we like the reality we wake up to each day. There's no perfect part of any of our lives, let alone if we start to look a little bit beyond our lives into the life of our family, the life of our community, the life of our nation, the life of our world. The question is, how are we to judge it? How are we to know what's right and wrong? And what is my part in bringing hope? And how hopeful should I be? Because I can look at my TV screens or read my Twitter stream or uh, open a newspaper, and I can say, do you know, I hate this reality so much, I'm just going to live as if it's not there. I can live in denial. Whistle a happy tune, stick my fingers in my ear, and hope it all goes away. Or I can live in a sort of campaigning, forceful life of trying to make change as if it all depends on me and what we do and we're teetering on the brink and it's it's up to us. I could stand back and just go, well, do you know what? It's in God's hands. I've no idea. What the prophets do is they open our eyes to the nature of reality, what's really going on in our world, They then make us look and take a judgment as to what is right and what is wrong because they give us God's eye view on our world. And then they say, look, here is God's hope. Here is God's hope. Now, Isaiah 42 uh, 
sits in a much bigger book, which sits in a much bigger story. And we have to get at least a little flavor of the much bigger story in which it lives to make sense of these just few verses. And the story in which it lives, which is the story that runs from the first chapter of Genesis to the last chapter of Revelation, but particularly in what we call the Old Testament, the, the, the narrative of what happens before Jesus comes, is a story of a repeating pattern. It's a story of a repeating pattern that says, you and I, humanity, were created for something by someone. We were created to live within the loving purposes of God our Heavenly Father. You were made for a purpose. You were made to live a life of joyful freedom within the purposes of God. You were meant to have a life of joyful freedom. But in Bible terms, joyful freedom doesn't come from an absence of rules. It comes from living within God's purposes. And those purposes, those commandments, those rules, those laws, like a, a, a parachute to somebody falling through the air, are meant to keep us safe. Or like the rules of a game, they're meant to give shape and purpose. Or like the dots on a page for a musician, they're meant to bring us joy. And the recurring pattern is that when the people that God has made look at these rules, look at these laws, look at God's purposes, and go, do you know what? I just want to do it my way. I don't want this parachute strapped to my back. I'd rather just free fall. I don't want to play by the rules of the game. I want to make it up as I go along. I don't really care how you play this instrument. I'm just going to busk. What they find is that far from being free, they end up trapped. Far from being able to live life their own way, they end up being blown around, buffeted, dragged downwards. And to use the parachuting or not parachuting metaphor, hitting the ground at great speed. God's rule, God's purposes, are the place that we were designed to live. Because he loves us. Because he made us. Because he purposed us a life of joyful freedom. So over and over again, the recurring pattern is this. God gives his rule, his loving purposes to his people. The people he's made rebel. They say, no, thank you. I'm going to do things my own way. But rather than God allowing them to free fall, rather than God allowing them to self-destruct, God time and time again chooses servants to rescue them. He chooses an individual like Abraham or like Moses. He chooses a family that becomes a nation, God's Old Testament people, ancient Israel. He chooses them in order to live out what it looks like to live within God's loving purposes, to live a life of freedom and of joy so that other people looking at them and go, I want to live like that. I wish I had that parachute. I wish I played by those rules. I wish I had that music to sing. Wouldn't it be wonderful? And you go, come in. This life's for you too. But time and time again, even those people that God has chosen to be his servants, what you find is time and time again, they themselves rebel. They themselves get stuck. They themselves go, I don't want to live life the way that you want me to live, God. I think I know better. And then what happens in their individual and in their nation's life is that that, if you like, spiritual lack of freedom becomes a physical lack of freedom. Most of all, what we find is God's Old Testament people, ancient Israel, end up slaves in Egypt. 
and it mirrors, if you like, their spiritual slavery. They've decided to, to, to cut the traces, to not live by God's rules, to not live within God's loving purposes, and in their physical lives, they end up enslaved in Egypt, almost as a visual aid, a lived-out reality of what it is in their spiritual lives. And yet again, God doesn't abandon them. God sends Moses to rescue them out of slavery, to give them once again a, a, a repeat, if you like, of God's laws for them, and to say, live with me, live for me. I want you to live a life of joyful freedom. And I want you now, as my people, to show to the watching world, to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, what it is to live with me. To live a life of justice and of peace, of joyful freedom, so that others get called in too. But I said it was a recurring pattern. Because just as individuals boom and bust, just as individuals get given this gift by God and say to God, I'm not interested, so God's Old Testament people we find again and again keep turning their backs on God. They're not very good at being his servants. They're not very good at living out this life of joyful freedom. What they actually live out of is as if they're still slaves. So by the time we get to Isaiah, what we find is that the prophet Isaiah, or prophets Isaiah, have to speak some really tough words. What you find in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah is Isaiah having to say to them, you are in real danger. You are in real danger because you've turned your backs on the God who wanted you to live a life of joyful freedom and so you are about to end up in despairing slavery. You are going to be kicked around by the forces of this big, wide world. And by the time we get to Isaiah 40 in the next few chapters, which is where we're diving into over these next five weeks, you find that the, uh, the prophet is having to speak to them of the reality that they were experiencing of having been once again enslaved. They've been scooped up from their promised land. They've been taken into exile in Babylon. And the Babylonians have taken away their freedom. And they've taken it away because actually God's people had given it up. They'd given it up by saying to God, not interested in your loving rule, not interested in your loving purposes, I'm going to do things my way. The prophet speaks of the reality of this world. And just as an aside, but an important aside, part of the job of Christians is to speak with love, with care, with humility, but with clarity about the reality of the world in which we live. Christians should, should stand shoulder to shoulder with those of no faith and of other faiths in speaking of the reality of the world in which we are. Christians should be speaking of the reality of climate change. Christians should be speaking of the reality of inequality, of in injustice. Christians should be on the front foot, just like the prophets of old, of speaking of things as they are. And what you find in, in the book of Isaiah, if you were to read the first 39 chapters, is that actually the prophet also speaks judgment. Not the sort of judgment that says, I'm right, you're wrong, you're going to hell. That's what we think of as judgment, isn't it? But the judgment that says, these are God's loving purposes and you are living outside them. This is how we were meant to live and we're not living that way. This is what God wanted for you and you're not living within what he's given you. And the consequences are terrible. Because you weren't designed to live like that. Reality and judgment. Thankfully, prophecy doesn't end there. 
prophecy in the Old Testament and New always, always, always speaks of hope. We've got to be quite careful to hear that as Christians, because at times when we do get on the front foot of speaking reality and we get a little bit into speaking our judgment, this is wrong, that's wrong, the other's wrong, we forget that as Christians we believe in a God of hope. We believe in a God who has never and will never give up on his world, who has never and will never give up on any individual, any community, any nation, any part of his world. We are to speak reality, we are to speak of judgment, but we are always to speak of hope. And down through the centuries, Isaiah had seen that that hope had been in particular individuals, particular families, and a particular nation to live out God's life and draw other people to him. So that his justice, his righteousness, in other words, God's loving purposes will be lived out in the way we treat one another, in the way we treat our world. And time and again, that hope had been dashed because the weight on the shoulders of these servants had been too much for them to carry. They'd been, to use the words of Isaiah 42, they'd been like a, a flickering wick that's blown out by the winds, like a reed in a field, again, that's blown over by the wind and is sort of bent double and bruised. They could hardly look after themselves, let alone be hope for a, a watching world. And what we find in these five servant songs in Isaiah is the prophet Isaiah turning from having spoken the important reality and judgment, that clarity that God gives his prophet, to speak of hope that is not based on whether you or I are going to get things right. Hope that is not based on whether one individual frail human is going to carry the load properly. But hope that rests on the shoulders of one who will be called the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord. They're words that Jesus applies to himself. They're words that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John apply to Jesus. They're words that get spoken in Acts in some of the sermons that are there. They're words that we see fulfilled in God's coming king and priest and prophet and servant in Jesus. Here is my servant, first one of chapter 42, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice. That means God's loving purposes to the nations. He's going to bring that way to live, that sense of living within the arms of God to all peoples everywhere. He's not going to need to do it with an army at his back or with a huge microphone or megaphone to yell at people. Verse 2, he will not sh shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. What good news is that? How many mornings do you and I wake up feeling like a smoldering wick, like it would take the slightest puff of wind to blow us out? Or a bruised reed knowing that actually we are so broken on the inside, even if people don't see it on the outside. Here is God's servant who comes, who will not snuff out a smoldering wick, who will not knock flat the bruised reeds. And in fact, there's a pun that we don't get because this was written in Hebrew and we're reading it in English. But what verse 4 does is it picks up the language of the smoldering wick and picks up the language... Um, of the bruised reed. 
because actually that word for not faltering is the same word as a smoldering wick. It says, he's not a smoldering wick. And when it says not be discouraged, actually it's the same word as the, the bruised word. So he's not smoldering like a wick, and he's not bruised like a reed. Therefore, he does have the strength to carry us, those bruised ones, those broken ones, and to bring us hope. He will establish justice on earth in his law, Torah. The islands will put their hope. This is what the God The Lord says, he who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who work on it. In other words, you can trust this one because this is the God who made all things. This is the God who made you. This is the God who made you for a life of joyful freedom, living within his joyful, loving purposes. He's coming, the creator God, the loving God. He's coming, the servant king. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, he says to his servant. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you or will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. Now, that sentence packs a huge punch because the language of covenant is that catch-all word that scoops up how God brings his loving purposes to people like you and me and to his people and says to us, I love you. I will always love you. And the way that you love me back is to live within my loving purposes, to live within my law. I will always love you. That's covenant language. It's not contract. It's not I'll love you if, I'll love you when, I'll love you until. It's simply I love you. And the covenant says, so love me in return. Live within my loving purposes for you. Live righteously, live lives of justice and of peace and of generosity and of kindness and of care. That's how you love God back, because God first loved you. And I will make you a light for the Gentiles. In other words, this isn't just for an individual God is called like Abraham or Moses or David. This isn't just for a particular family or community or nation like God's Old Testament people, ancient Israel. This is for you. This is for me. This is for the whole world. To open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from dungeons, uh, from dungeon those who sit in darkness. There's that freedom language again. What we proclaim in the good news of Jesus is nothing less than the freedom we were intended for. The freedom of being able to jump out of a plane and not just be grabbed by gravity and hit the ground, but to float down underneath that parachute that holds us safe. The freedom to play with all our might that game of life by the rules that give it shape and purpose, not just a free-for-all punching match. That freedom to play and to sing that beautiful song that God has given us not a discordant mess of notes as we each do our own thing. I am the Lord, verse 8. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. In other words, you've got a choice to make. You can either live within the loving purposes of God for which you are made, which will bring you freedom and joy, or you end up serving something else. You'll serve the idol which is wealth. 
you'll serve the idol that is power. You'll serve the idol that is security and being safe. You'll serve the idol that is health. You'll serve the idol that is family. You'll serve the idol that is being right. All good things, but terrible gods. All wonderful gifts, but terrible if we think they're the giver. Instead, he says, see the former things have taken place. New things I declare before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Here is something fresh, full of life, full of joy, a life of joyful freedom, living within God's purposes. And how does it happen? Well, not because you make it happen, but because the one who came as the servant lived and died and rose again to make it happen. And the next four songs that we're going to look at in Isaiah start to unpack how it is that the servant's life and his death and resurrection make possible that life of joyful freedom. But even before we hear that, we also hear a challenge. How does my life reflect the life of the servant? How does my life live out living within the purposes of God? How does my life reflect the justice and righteousness of God? Is my life prophetic? Do I speak of the reality of things as they are? Am I courageous enough to speak of the judgment of what's right and what's wrong? And will my life show hope to a watching world? Let's pray together. Loving Heavenly Father, thank you for these words written so many thousands of years ago that speak so powerfully us today. And our prayer is that you will give us eyes that see truly the reality and the judgment and the hope in which we live and for which we've been made. And we pray that as we walk in the footsteps of the servant king, the one who lived and died and rose again for us, that you would help us to live lives that speak of hope and that live out your purposes for this world. In Jesus' name, amen.